It's time for Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott, inviting the atheist, agnostic, and skeptic to examine for themselves the evidence for the Christian faith. We are all limited by what we do not know and by the things we think we know but are not true. Dr. Joe Mott earned his Ph.D. at LSU and was a distinguished math professor at Florida State University for 38 years, helping to write three math textbooks and authoring over 30 research articles in math. He is now the host of this radio program, Defending and Commending the Faith. Here is Joe Mott. In the last episode, I quoted Immanuel Kant's famous statement, Two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing admiration and awe. The starry heavens above me and the moral law within me. This is a remarkable testimony to the reality of God. The psalmist saw a similar testimony. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? That's in Psalms 8, verses 3 and 4. The psalmist probably had only a small portion of our modern understanding of the immensity and complexity of the universe. We today have so much more reason to admire God's work in the cosmos and to wonder why he should give attention to such tiny beings as ourselves. Charles Darwin attempted to give an evolutionary account of the moral law within. But in his book, Is Everything Permitted?, Mark Linville declared that an evolutionary account of morality like that of Darwin or Dawkins, is essentially moral subjectivism, the view that all moral judgments are expressions of the sentiments of the speaker. The subjectivist treats all judgments about morality as though they were nothing more than an expression of taste. The moral subjectivist says, there is no moral claim that is absolute. But that statement is an absolute moral claim. And if we apply that statement to itself, we see it is self-defeating. So here is another child of atheism, a self-defeating morality. What Kant called the moral law within is akin to what C.S. Lewis the late Oxford scholar, Christian apologist, and writer, discussed in book one entitled Right and Wrong as a Clue to the Meaning of the Universe in his book, Mere Christianity. In chapter one of book one, Lewis said, when two people are quarreling, it looks very much as if both parties had in mind some kind of law or rule of fair play or decent behavior, or morality, or whatever you like to call it, about which they both agreed. Lewis later calls this the moral law of right and wrong. Lewis continues, Quarreling means trying to show that the other man is in the wrong. 
And there would be no sense in trying to do that unless you and he had some sort of agreement as what right and wrong are. Just as there would be no sense in saying that a footballer had committed a foul unless there was some agreement about the rules of football. Lewis says this law of right and wrong formerly was called the law of nature. Nowadays, Lewis said, when we talk of the laws of nature, we usually mean things like gravitation or hereditary or the laws of chemistry. But when older thinkers call the law of right and wrong by the name, the law of nature, they meant the law of human nature. This law was called the law of nature because people thought that everyone knew it by nature and did not need to be taught it. But taking the race as a whole, they thought that the human idea of decent behavior was obvious to everyone. And I believe they were right. What was the sense in saying to the enemy in World War II that they were in the wrong unless right is a real thing, which the Nazis at bottom knew as well as we did and ought to have practiced. If they had no notion of what we mean by right, then though we might still have had to fight them, we could no more have blamed them for that than for the color of their hair. The moral law of human nature has special significance in the Christian worldview. In both the Old Testament and New Testament, we are admonished to love our neighbor as ourselves. Our neighbor is anyone near us, a roommate, a passerby, a person living near you, someone at your work, a fellow motorist, or any of the host of people who touch our lives during the day. This is a special duty. Its force cannot be evaded by sincere Christians. It is possible to think that love is nothing but a set of right feelings toward our neighbor. But this would betray our having overlooked the proviso as ourselves. We must love him or her with the same degree of zeal, consistency, and devotion with which we love ourselves. Whenever our neighbor happens to be a Christian, we have a special obligation to be aware of another's needs. In fact, some New Testament commands are concerned with this particular duty. For example, some passages of Scripture emphasize that we are to put on certain positive attributes of character concerning the needs of others. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Colossians 3 verse 8. In other passages, we are to put away negative attributes. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, 
clamor and evil speaking like slander, gossip, backbiting, etc., be put away from you with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. That's in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32. But in both types of passages, we are reminded that Christ set the example for us in that he forgave us. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 from the English Standard Version. Belief must meet certain qualifications to ascend to the level of what the Bible means by faith. I think we all would agree that as humans, we tend to think more highly of ourselves over that of others. Granted that reality, nevertheless, The law that we love our neighbor as ourselves counters that tendency and still remains the norm by which we measure the possibilities of charity toward a neighbor. Think more highly of him or her. Think of his or her love needs above your own. Go the extra mile. This means that the expression of Christian love is a delicate balance of knowledge, feeling, and it is not just having a sympathetic feeling and that becomes the full extent of your concern, but instead take corresponding action to fulfill your concern. Children may possibly gratify their love needs by getting and grappling to be the first. But Christian adults need to do so by giving. The Golden Rule teaches us, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. We may be tempted to judge anyone who has violated the moral law, but the Golden Rule encourages us to consider the possibility that sometime we could occupy the same place. Some people believe that the Bible supports the belief in a universally apprehended moral order. Christians believe we are made in the image of God and a manifestation of that image is found in our conscience and in our ability to reason. The Apostle Paul's statement supports that belief. When heathen people who have no Mosaic law instinctively do what the law demands, although they have no law, they are a law to themselves. For they show that the deeds the law demands are written on their hearts because their consciences will testify for them and their inner thoughts will either accuse or defend them On the day when God, through Jesus Christ, in accordance with the good news I preach, will judge the secrets people have kept. That's in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 to the 16 from the Williams translation of the New Testament. In chapter 4, book 1 on mere Christianity, entitled, 
what lies behind the law, Lewis discusses the laws of nature as actual facts which we observe, and this is part of nature itself. These laws are just another way of saying what in fact nature does. On the other hand, Lewis says, the law of human nature, of right and wrong, must be something above and beyond the actual facts of human behavior. In this case, besides the actual facts, you have something else, a real law which we did not invent and which we know we ought to obey. Throughout history, people have wondered what the universe is and how it came about. Essentially, three different views are discussed. The third view comes at the end of this chapter. Lewis first discusses the materialist view and says in brief what the materialist would say. The second view is the religious view. Lewis says, according to it, what is behind the universe is more like a mind than it is like anything else we know. That is to say, it is conscious and has purposes and prefers one thing to another. And on this view, it made the universe in order to produce creatures like itself. I mean, like itself to the extent of having minds. We cannot find out which view is the right one by science. Some modern views often say that human knowledge has progressed from the theological to the philosophical to the scientific and that the best explainers of the universe today are no longer clergymen or philosophers, but scientists. Lewis takes some time to describe how science works. Then he says, if there is something behind the universe, then either it will have to remain altogether unknown to men or else make itself known in some different way. The statement that there is any such thing and the statement there is no such thing are neither of them statements that science can make. Then Lewis adds, there is one thing and only one in the whole universe which we know more about than we could learn from external observation. That one thing is man. We do not merely observe men, we are men. In this case, we have to, so to speak, inside information. We are in the know. And because of that, we know that men find themselves under a moral law, which they did not make and cannot quite forget even when they try and which they know they ought to obey. Anyone studying man from the outside would never get the slightest evidence that we had this moral law, for his observation would only show what we did. And the moral law is about what we ought to do. In the same way, if there were anything above or behind the observed facts in the case of stones or the weather, we, by studying them from the outside, 
could never hope to discover it. I'm running out of time, so let me skip to come to a kind of a conclusion. Lewis said, all I have got to at this point is a something which is directing the universe and which appears in me as a law urging me to do right and making me feel responsible and uncomfortable when I do wrong. I think we have to assume it is more like a mind than it is like anything we know. Because after all, the only other thing we know about is matter, and you can hardly imagine a bit of matter giving instructions. But of course, it need not be like a mind, still less like a person. Lewis says in his next chapter, we shall see if we can find out anything more about this power that gives us the law of human nature. Thank you for listening to Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott, a production of Wave 94 Radio in Tallahassee, Florida. If you have any questions or comments for Joe, please forward them to Doug Apple at Wave 94 at this email address, dougapple at wave94.com. And be sure to join us every Monday evening at 6.45 p.m. on Wave 94 and subscribe through your favorite podcast app, Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott.